Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams, and I'm really looking forward to uh, having the gentleman who's going to join me here in a second because he's a very bright guy and he's a great writer. I've always appreciated the written word, and he wrote a book a couple of years ago that was a New York Times bestseller, and that was Slaying the Tiger. I thought it was uh, the most unvarnished view of life on the PGA Tour that had ever been written. And there's not a lot of competition, but despite that, it was really, really good. Well, he's done it again because he decided to take on the project of examining the Ryder Cup, the most recent one at Whistling Straits. But along the way, he wrote a history book. So if you have any interest at all in the Ryder Cup in terms of where it's going and it's Rome next or where it's been and why it is and why it has become one of the most important events in all of sports, this is the book for you. The book is The Cup They Couldn't Lose, by author Shane Ryan, and our conversation is coming up right now. With that, we welcome in the New York Times best-selling author of Slaying the Tiger, and as I mentioned, the new book, The Cup They Couldn't Lose, Shane Ryan. Shane, how are you, my friend? Yeah, I'm really good, Gary. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, listen, uh, you were kind enough to get me the book last week. I, I was able to plow through it. Uh, it goes on sale today, Tuesday, May 10th. And, uh, you know, you, you wrote about the, the larger picture of professional golf on the PGA Tour with your first foray into writing about about golf and and as I mentioned in the open I, the book was excellent and and I was not surprised at all to find myself enthralled by this and and look you can you can write about a lot of different subjects what was the primary motivation behind pursuing this story of this specific Ryder Cup but with a history left lesson kind of wrapped around it yeah, you know, well, first thing I would say is that, you know, I didn't grow up as a golfer and it took me a while to get really, really into golf. But even before then, even when I was more of a baseball, basketball, football guy, the Ryder Cup was such an important event for me. I loved it so much to me, you know, from the time I was a little kid, it's that and March Madness. Those are the two, you know, upper pantheon sports. Uh, and there was always such a romance when I was a kid for the Ryder Cup. And, you know, that continued throughout my life. And it was just circumstance that the very first golf event I covered when, you know, the universe led me to into this world was the 2012 Ryder Cup at Medina. Um, and as you know, that was just such an exciting, ridiculous comeback on that Sunday by the Europeans. And, you know, seeing what Poulter did and all the guys and the, and the European fans singing and all the disappointed Americans, it just cemented this kind of love of the event for me of how exciting and how dramatic it was. And so... I think even as, you know, as far back as 2012, I thought, man, it would be cool to write a book uh, about the Ryder Cup someday. Uh, and then, you know, I wrote Slaying the Tiger and I thought, okay, next American Ryder Cup, I'm going to do it. And then John Feinstein was going to write a book <laughs> about the next American Ryder Cup. So I said, well, maybe, maybe it's not the best idea to challenge the guy who has the best-selling golf book ever. Let's wait four years. Um, and so, yeah, that was sort of the plan to do a Whistling Straits thing. And then, you know, the history of it, this was something I don't think I fully realized until I began researching this book, just how close the Ryder Cup was to ending when we go back to the late 70s, early 80s, when the, you know, the Team UK became Team Europe 
and they were doing everything they could to make this more competitive. Uh, and it was really a terrible situation on the European side because they lost a big sponsor in Sun Alliance Bank. Uh, and as you read in the book, Gary, they were going crazy. Basically, this one guy was traveling all over the UK, finding anybody who would give them money to keep this going. Uh, and, you know, the, the consequences of him failing would have been no more Ryder Cup. Uh, and he did at the last second uh, get a sponsorship from Bell's Scotch Whiskey that kept this going. And then what they needed was a total, <clears throat> pardon me, a total transformation. Uh, they needed to be competitive immediately for this thing to work. And here comes Tony Jacklin, who is like their George Washington figure. Here comes Seve Ballesteros as a player. And these two guys just changed the fortunes of the Ryder Cup. It's like they immediately knew what to do. And I think it's just one of the great comeback stories really in the history of sports and you know what followed from that from their early 80s dominance is all of a sudden 30 years of europeans really controlling this event and dominating the americans and so that is one i would say one of the two main narratives of my book uh is how europe changed you know the, the 50 years of history and, and became the best Ryder cup team with worse players and you know the second main story then follows from that which is how did the U.S. finally figure out to treat this as a team event, to learn about tactics and strategy? And, you know, that goes back to the task force and all that. How did they figure out then how to reverse the tide, um, which we saw culminate with Whistling Straight? So it kind of ended perfectly for me with that, uh, you know, that crazy lopsided American victory in Wisconsin. You know, Shane, you mentioned the tides, and I think there's there's so much that has been in the current of of, of the European and American Ryder Cup for the last 30 plus years. And all of it is interesting. I think it's a great anecdote that, that, you know, that, that whiskey essentially kept uh, the European Ryder cup team afloat. That makes, that makes some sense, but I, I I'm glad <laughs> that you devoted the amount of time that you did to the importance of Tony Jacklin, because when I started to take a real genuine interest in this was, was when, you know, they started to flip the script and he was, he was perfect but, but the fact is, is that his relationship with the European Ryder Cup was not good. It was tumultuous, to say the least. And I want you to explain, you know, when he took on the captaincy, really, like, right before 83 at Palm Beach Gardens, was, was a real shock. I mean, it was like a shock to himself. Explain how all that came together. Yeah, and so, you know, Tony Jackson was a... First of all, I think what a lot of people don't understand about Tony Jacklin is what a pioneer he was as yeah. a player. When he won the Open Championship and the U.S. Open, this guy broke a decades-long drought of British golfers not winning majors, which, you know, for a place where golf was invented and, you know, had been the powerhouse in golf for the longest time, World War I, World War II didn't treat them well. And so he was the guy who brought them back to the national stage to the point that, you know, when Justin Rose won the U.S. Open at Marion, he thanked Tony Jacklin. I mean, that his influence continues to be felt in the world of English and British golf. But so he played in these Ryder Cups. He had his famous moment at the concession with Jack Nicklaus. As his career went along, uh, he became very, very frustrated with the, at, this, at the time, the UK sort of Ryder Cup system. He loved to tell a story about how the fact that the shoes they gave him, the soles came off uh, during one of his matches at that time. He felt they weren't really trying hard enough. Uh, and then it got to the point where in 79, they played in America and Ken Brown and Mark James, two of the, the, the European players were basically disrespectful at every stop. You know, they were kind of like making fools of themselves and having sort of this defensive reaction because they almost knew that they would lose. And, you know, he was disgusted with that, but then 81 comes along and Tony Jacklin is left off the team in favor of them. 
And it really, you know, all this bitterness that he had been feeling sort of reaches this climax where he's like, I hate the Ryder Cup. I hate the people running it. I want nothing to do with it. And he made his feelings clear. And they didn't really like him either because he was, you know, <laughs> expressing his disapproval. So, you know, less than two years later in 1982 at Sandmore Golf Club, he's on the driving range and he gets approached by these executives from the British PGA, from the European Tour, or like the fledgling, you know, pre-runner of the European Tour. And all of a sudden they ask him to be Ryder Cup captain. And, you know, his, what he said to me was, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I mean, a total and complete surprise. His initial reaction was to say no, because again, <laughs> you know, he didn't really like them. But then he thought, you know, here's what I'm going to do. Like he went overnight and thought about it. And he said, maybe this is my chance to change things. And what I'll do is I'll come with these list of demands to them. Uh, and if they say no, no skin off my back. I just won't be Ryder Cup captain. And those demands are, you know, he wants, you know, nice travel over there. He wants a nice team room. He wants captain's picks. There's all these things he has in his head. And he kind of goes in with this list of demands thinking they're probably going to say no because he's seen how it's run. What he didn't realize, but we talked about before, is the, you know, the fight they had just to get sponsorship money. And there, when I say there, I mean European Tour, British PGA, their acute sense that we really need things to change quickly. And so where six years ago, they would not have been disposed to do something radical. Now doing something radical, like bringing Jacqueline on, doesn't seem so radical at all. It seems like we need to take some kind of risk to make sure that we're competitive in this. So he lists out all these demands and they all, they say yes. And he goes, well, okay, I guess I accept the job. Uh, and that's, and, and from there, I mean, you know, his, he went up to Lord Darby, who was the head of the British PGA of, you know, cousin of Queen Elizabeth, very snooty guy that they didn't like each other. And, you know, uh, he said, what, what about Seve? And Lord Darby is like, well, he's your problem now. You're the captain. And so a few weeks later, he met with Seve Ballesteros at a hotel who Seve also hated the Ryder Cup people uh, because they had kept him off the team because he wanted appearance fees from the European tour, which he deserved. But anyway, he and Tony Jacklin meet. Seve goes into his grievances over breakfast at this hotel. And Tony Jacklin says, yes, yes, I understand. I get it. You're, I totally agree with you. And he says, but I can't do this without you. And this is your chance to make a name for yourself in the UK and internationally. And finally, Seve agrees and says, okay, I'll help you. And, you know, from that moment with Jacqueline as captain and Seve Ballesteros on board, everything changes. I mean, it, those two guys really changed everything and they did it very, very quickly. They almost won a few months later in 83 in Florida. And then at the Belfry, uh, they win two years later. You know, Shane, 79 was the first year you mentioned it. I, I did not know uh, that story about Ken Brown and Mark James. And, and the reason why it's, it's downright shocking is that, is that Mark James captained the European team uh, in a dubious way in 1999 in the manner in which he went about, you know, getting a lead, obviously, but burying guys, hiding them, and then putting them out for slaughter on Sunday. I had no idea about the way that he, he had behaved in 79, and he still was not only on the next team, but wound up ascending to the captaincy. But the Seve thing is great because Seve, you, you even wrote about it. You said, look, like in America, he has this legendary status. There's a mythical component uh, to him, but, but his his... His rise in the game, uh, you know, 1976, people saw him at 19 for the first time at Burkdale, and, and Johnny Miller wound up winning that. But everybody remembers not only as much Miller winning, but Seve's impression that he left. He was telegenic. Uh, he had incredible creativity. But he was a very confrontational person, which made him perfect 
for for this competition. He was right out of central casting to be the perfect antagonist to the American side. And that never ended. I mean, in 97, when he captained the team in Spain, I honestly thought he was on every hole at the same time in that golf cart. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it was it was amazing. But but one of the things about 83, I, there was a line from the movie Rocky uh, when his when he gets back to the corner of Apollo Creed and his and his and his trainer system, he doesn't know it's a damn show. He thinks it's a damn fight. And that to me was what 83 was, that that was like, OK, they survived. But the next time they saw them, they were going down is the way I was the way I look at it. Yeah, 100 percent right. That was a shot across the bow, which which showed America that, you know, this is about to get really serious and we're taking it very seriously. I mean, 83, I, I think one of the most moving things I learned during the research of this book was in that 83 Ryder Cup in Florida. Um, you know, for people who don't know, it was this really, really close Ryder Cup. And America had never, ever lost an American soil before in the Ryder Cup, barely lost in, you know, British soil. But anyway, it goes down to this Sunday and Lanny Watkins hits this beautiful wedge in one of the last, you know, Tom Watson wins one of the concluding matches and America holds on by the skin of their teeth and they're all happy. And, you know, Jack Nicholas kisses the ground where Lanny Watkins hit his wedge from, but the European locker room, I mean, they are devastated and they're crying. Everybody's crying and, you know, everybody's downtrodden and Seve Ballesteros came in and was basically whipping them up and saying, you know, we don't cry about this. This is not something to cry about. We cry, you know, when we don't play our best or whatever, this is the start of something we're going to, and he had everybody, basically he motivated the entire locker room and, you know, they go from crying and feeling sort of crestfallen to feeling incredibly motivated that they're going to go win the next time. Um, and so, yeah, that's it. You know, just the strength they showed in Florida that time, almost pulling off what would have been really one of the greatest upsets ever uh, in sports, that propelled them, it gave them their self-belief, and it propelled them so that not only did they win the next time, but then in 87, they won an American soil for the first time. And then you look, you can you can go out right to the present. You know, 30 years later, they're still the dominant force in the Ryder Cup before America finally takes steps to, to sort of reverse it again. The... You know, when 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 Jacqueline is in the position that he was in and and look, he had to have good players and he didn't have didn't have strength on the back end of the roster. But what he had was generational players who were who were leading these teams as Seve comes along. Subsequently, obviously, Faldo comes along. He starts not only being very good in the Ryder Cup, but also winning major championships. So it, it was interesting to me that, like in 81, the American team is arguably the greatest team ever assembled. It, when you look at them in retrospect, as far as career accomplishment, you're like, oh, my God. And, yeah. and, but Europe started to not only have stars, but some depths with stars. Langer comes along. I mentioned Faldo. Woosnam comes along. Even though Monty didn't win a major championship, he became a stalwart on those teams. And so not only did they have a captain that would fight for him, for, for them, they had strength, not necessarily in numbers, but at least when it came to one through six and eventually one through eight. Yeah, they did. And yeah, you look at some of those like 83, you know, Jacqueline demanded captain's picks and they, it was too late to implement them in 83. And so you look at his roster and you go, Oh boy, on the, you know, on, the, yeah. <laughs> on the, the last four or whatever are not guys you would think of as these legendary players, but Yes, it, it, there are a couple of things happening. As you said, 
these, you know, in Europe, golf in Europe was starting to come into its own. And so you did have guys like Langer coming in and, and the Spanish players and, and Nick Faldo comes in and, you know, Ian Woosnam, all those guys. So you had that uh, kind of wave coming, which is going to help Tony Jacklin. And then you had success building on success. And then you had strategy, really, which it sounds like very simple, but the Americans didn't have strategy. One of my, the stories that just shocks me every time I hear it is that in 85, you know, which is the first one they won in the Jacklin era, um, at the Belfry, he manipulated that course, Tony Jacklin, to play to his team's strength, as you would. We see it all the time now. Um, you know, he made the greens slower because the Americans were used to putting on faster greens. He raised the rough up, made the fairways narrow, the same stuff we see today. Uh, Paul Azinger, when he was captain in 2008, and keep in mind, that's what, do my math here, 23 years, 25 years later, um, when he was captain, he wanted to do the same thing at Valhalla. And Kerry Haig from the PGA of America, when Azinger asked him, said, huh, nobody's ever asked to do that before. So think about that. I mean, think about something so simple, right? Here, Tony Jacklin yep. obviously manipulates the golf course. It works, you know, to, to his team's benefit. They win a pretty lopsided Ryder Cup. It takes 23 years for the Americans to do the same. Uh, captain's picks, it takes America so long to respond. You could go down the list, all of these innovations that they're doing, uh, call it like American arrogance. They were so good that they didn't think they needed to, uh, you know, stoop to these tactics to, to treating it like a team event. Well, they were so far behind that they couldn't win this thing for a really long time with any consistency, at least. Yeah, you know, the, the Azinger thing is interesting, and you write about the fact that as much about the, the pod system and the way that he examined uh, team building and using and using some dynamics from, from military strategies uh, with, with building the pod system and the fact that it was abandoned. And, of course, famously after 2014 and, and Phil Mickelson in the press conference saying, I don't know why we went away from something uh, that, that worked, in addition to you talking about and writing about the, the fact that it's become so hard to win on the road because of the way that these home captains are trying to truly set up a golf course that will discriminate against the strengths of the other side. And we see it now to the point that it's like, you know, everyone complains. It's like, look, we know what we're getting. We know what we're getting over there, and we know what they're going to see over here. They're going to see very little rough. And over there, like they did at Paris, uh, they saw hay fields off fairways. And, right. and, Jim Furyk, and Jim Furyk even said in your book, look, I, I, I didn't construct my team uh, properly for the setup. But the other thing about that, and we could talk about a million things, is the yeah. fact that Europe is very clever, that they use these sites and they always stage a European tour event to give these guys the opportunity to, to indoctrinate themselves to the setup of these golf courses that they're going to see soon enough in a Ryder Cup competition. And now it appears finally the Americans are using analytics and using this in a way that is building the same type of strength over here as Europe has used over there for more than two decades, Shane. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're finally doing everything right. And it's, it's funny because once it started, and, I, you know, as we said, I think Azinger had a lot of the foundational ideas that the American success today is built on. He was a brilliant captain. But like you said, you know, that was forgotten for, for the next Ryder Cup. Davis Love actually brought a lot of that stuff back in 2012. And I think maybe if they had won on Sunday, if they hadn't had this flukish loss go against them, maybe that's when you would have seen the tide change. Instead, Europe comes back and wins. And then 
you know, if you're America, you have to suffer through Ted Bishop and, and Tom Watson and this idea of like, well, these guys are just soft. We need to hammer, you know, you just need a John Wayne figure. Well, so they bring Tom <laughs> Watson to the forefront and that's a disaster, right? That's the disaster in Glen Eagles. And Phil does his thing and he says, why did we go away from this? Things need to change. And then the task force forms and the task force, you know, you and I were both there to watch it. It was an object of humor, right? I mean, they, people laughed at it because it's a funny name. It's a, it seems like a really self-important thing, the task force. Uh, and, you know, Lee Westwood, I think was the first one to mock it on Twitter and everybody did, but it turns out that the task force was amazing <laughs> and, and instrumental in, in taking what they had learned, carrying it forward. You know, Davis Love won in Hazeltine. Obviously we saw what happened in Paris, but then this, this Wisconsin blowout, but they're figuring things out and they have a, something uh, that Jason Aquino, who's the head of their yeah. staff, uh, Team USA stats group, he called institutional memory. And all that means is that you learn from one year to the next, and you don't just learn from your failures, but you learn from your successes. And that was what Europe had been doing with their quote unquote template for decades. Americans had been veering wildly from one strategy to the next and none of them worked and there was no continuity. Well, now they have continuity and they have it across, across the board to the extent that now there's no difference between the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup team. It is the same group of captains training to become, you know, vice captains training to become uh, head captains. Uh, it is the same tactics. It is the same stats people now. You know, they are using everything at their disposal to learn what works and what doesn't. Um, to the point I talked with Davis Love after this last Ryder Cup, and he says, you know, there's, there's a lot we need to change. And I said, what do you mean there's a lot you need to change? You just won 19 to 9. Nobody's ever won by that much before. And he told me, he's like, yeah, but, you know, we're talking about things with the food and the transportation. And that's when it clicks and you go, wow, these guys are getting really granular. It's not just like the mm -hmm. pairings and things like that. They've got that covered. They're thinking down to the level of like what food these guys eat or, or how they get from one place to another. They are considering it on such a deep level because they finally understand that they have to. And that is like a, a huge, huge change. And, you know, it answers that question of, okay, Europe has these great tactics and they win with inferior players. What if you took the great tactics and put it on the team with superior players? Well, you get, you know, 19 to nine, you get, you get these sort of lopsided uh, results. And I, I think personally, that's what we're looking at moving forward. I think America is going to be really, really hard to beat even in Europe. Yeah. You know, 2014 was, was no question. It was a flashpoint. I, you, you mentioned the task force thing. I was in Bermuda for the Grand Slam of Golf, which is a PGA of America, was a PGA of America. I, I had no idea it was going to be the last one, but it was. Uh, yeah. but, but nonetheless, I remember when it was announced on Golf Channel that morning and I was there to do, do hits with, and they were like, what do you think? And I'm like, I, I don't really love the name. Uh, you're probably going to get lampooned for this. Uh, and, and, and now it's called the Ryder Cup Committee, whatever. But I wrote, I wrote for GolfChannel.com at that time advocating for somebody to oversee USA Golf because I thought that, that the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup, and then the President's Cup is, is you know, this little, you know, kind of redheaded stepchild that's trying to find its own footing. And it's actually been very competitive. It's just you, you got to have the other side win. But my point is they, they needed to have – they needed to have a, this this idea of USA Golf. Now, someone you're very fond of whose career just ended, Mike Krzyzewski, took over USA Basketball at a time where they were starting to lose international team competitions. And, and since he and Jerry Colangelo took it over, they didn't lose again anything. 
And, and it, was, it was a combination of, of player investment, using a pool of players, not saying, well, we're, we're going to kind of commit to this, but not to that. And, and I, thought that, I thought that the Ryder Cup, and, and in a grander scheme, USA Golf needed to do that. And you needed to invest the players. And to a degree, they've done that. These players now have, they have voice in the room. They have skin in the game. And, and it, as opposed to the PGA of America, Shane, going, well, that guy won our championship a couple years ago. Let's just make him the captain. And yeah. these guys don't really know us. And how could they harbor any any resentment toward us? We're only making $100 million off this thing, and they show up, and they're supposed to give their heart and soul to us. It, it doesn't work that way anymore. So I think a lot has changed on the USA side, including the things that you talked about, the analytical studies and the investment and understanding you know, what makes each guy tick. It's also knowing that these guys need to be part of the solution, not just told what to do. You're totally right. And, you know, as you're saying this and as we're talking, the one thing that we have skipped past this idea, and I know there's going to be people listening who, who say this, we're skipping past that concept of, well, the Americans just need to play better. Oh, that's right. Like, but isn't it funny that that's old? I think 10 years ago, if we were talking about this, that wouldn't be old. You know, that, that idea is basically discredited now. People understand what Correct. the is. Uh, and that's important, right? Because I think America really, including the captains, including players, believe that for a long time, believe that, you know, didn't understand this is a team event that you have to treat like a team event. I think your example of USA basketball is perfect because there came a point where the USA still had by far the best basketball players in the world. But what happens is that other countries develop really good basketball players. And because they're operating at a deficit, because they know how good America is, they are motivated to strategize how to beat us where we are not motivated because we're just better. And they adopt it. It's just like the European Ryder cup team by, because they have to, because they know they have to, in order to win, they come up with tactics. And all of a sudden it kind of like stuns you, right? What well, the U S didn't win the gold medal in basketball. Like how on earth did that Argentina, you know, how, and that same thing with the Ryder cup. Now, yeah. USA basketball re responded much faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> than team America did, but you know, it, it does get to a point where you're, you still have that safety net of having the best players, but you're not going to win unless you start to understand the nature of the team sport that you're playing. Uh, perhaps it was easier in basketball because everybody knows it's a team sport where in golf, it's a little harder. And then the other thing I, I think that was really interesting that you said is investing the players. And uh, I think what's so fascinating about that. And, and Davis love mentioned this when I talked to him, he was somebody who grew up, with the Ryder Cup completely outside his consideration in terms right. of his career goals. He would never have said, oh, a goal of mine is to make a Ryder Cup team uh, because he came up at the time when it was before it got competitive. By the time, he, I think he was 21 in the 80s. By the time it got competitive, he was already you know 21 and starting his professional career. Now he grew, nobody cares about the Ryder Cup more than Davis Love now. And he, you know, the first time he played it, he understood exactly what it was, but he didn't grow up thinking like, this is something important. If you ask any player in the U.S. today, like Tony Finau, I remember talking to him, just the memories he has in his apartment in Salt Lake City, watching the Europeans beat the Americans over and over, how sad he was you know, to watch that. These guys all grew up watching the Europeans kick our butts, basically. And so that I, I think the captains of today have a bit of an advantage in the sense that USA players really care because they understand what happened and they grew up watching and they really, really want to win. 
and so that's nice to have, right? That's nice when you have these guys who are gung ho and are not going to accept sort of just lamely, you know, losing every two years. I also think, Shane, one of the things that has been a challenge for American golf is the fact that the best player of this generation and arguably of any generation was not somebody inclined to, to wrap himself around Team Golf, and that's Tiger. And, and I think it's a coincidence that d during the, the breadth of his career, there hasn't been much success. And, and it's only been more recently, as, as he sees twilight, that he is truly embracing the idea of not only being around this younger generation, but being a, like, I never in my wildest dreams thought, he, like, really? Like, he's going to be part of the strategy sessions? Like, he's all yeah, into this? Yeah, when, yeah. When, when he had to literally take the rookies from the 06 team to dinner to, like, introduce himself to him because he was a deity and they were the commoners? I mean, that, that's how much of a gap and a divide there was between the greatest player on one team and, and everybody else, and that included the second best player on the team, Phil. Like, those other dynamics were, were, were part of this riptide that the Americans found themselves in over the last 25 years. And the, the reality is, is that the best player didn't necessarily create the best situation for his own team. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you look at the multiple failures of Team USA during that period, I think probably the one that stands out the most is never figured out how to use Tiger Woods to your advantage in a team situation. And it's, you know, it's a profound failure because Tiger Woods is Tiger Woods. <laughs> you know, it's not, this is a guy who is, is the biggest possible weapon you could have. But what ends up happening is that, you know, obviously a Ryder Cup is a smaller sample size. An 18-hole match is a smaller sample size than the 72-hole tournament. You've got to put him with other people so he's not just playing by himself. Funny thing about Tiger's record is it's very good in singles. Yes, and and abysmal in, in pairs, right? And you, you had people trying to figure it out. How Sutton did this famously put him with Phil Mickelson. That was a nightmare, you know? I mean, but people were thinking what to do. Let's put him with Davis Love. Let's put him with this. Let's put him with that. And I, I, I think, you know, what you're, maybe you were, I don't want to put words in your mouth, yeah. but what you're implying is that Tiger was never really all in. And I think that's 100% right. I, I don't, I, I, he wasn't. He, he yeah. was, and I've talked to people close, and not close enough, close to him. He just wasn't. It was not what he was, he wasn't reared to do that. He was reared to eviscerate uh, the, the competition. He was not reared, and, and particularly the idea of, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get close to you for a week, and like I'm going to impart you know, some of these things that, that matter most to me when it comes to, to competition. And I thought, he look, he is a predatorial figure. I think he's very comfortable with confrontation. But, but confrontation with a partner, that ain't it for him. And it's a different art, really. I mean, yeah. I remember, you know, looking at Medina when he played, uh, I, I remember something from there. Justin Rose, me, and Poulter at that time were the big partnership, and they were very, very good. And someone asked Ian Poulter, you know, what's the secret uh, of, of you guys being so good together or a good partnership in general? And I expected something about the golf or whatever. And what he said was, we never have to apologize to each other. And I thought that was so cool. And it was like profound too, as in we're a true team here. You know, we're, we're really, there's no one person messing up. It's both, you know, everything is us together. And it, it felt like there was such security in that. And then when I was watching Tiger, uh, and I'm looking at it now, so I don't I don't get this wrong. But you know, the, some of the guys he was playing with, he played with Stricker. Um, it looks like he played with Stricker all three times. Yeah. So I watched a couple of those matches, and you wouldn't say that Tiger did anything wrong. He certainly wasn't scoffing or getting mad at Steve Stricker or anything like that. 
And yet he's such an entity unto himself that when he messes up, he will react disgusted with himself. And what he did by accident, in my opinion, was close everyone off around him. There is no getting close to him. There is no being his teammate. And that is isolating and negatively affects people, even if he's not actively going, oh, Steve Stricker hit a terrible shot there, which he would never do. Uh, but it still has that effect of making things difficult for his partner. And we saw that with Stricker in that Ryder Cup. And uh, yeah, I think fundamentally, it's it's a lack of understanding of what uh, makes a good teammate. Uh, and, you know, if you look at Azinger in 08, I, I give him all the credit in the world, but but the fact remains Tiger was not there. He didn't have to manage that. And and yeah. I thought that that was a, a very co- convenient thing uh, to not have to deal with. And, and you know, I, I remember being there at Valhalla and, you know, Phil kind of tethered himself to Anthony Kim. He was the young Pied Piper at the time. And Anthony was great. And I thought that there was a there was a levity about these guys. They were they were light. And and considering the way that they had been just boat raced, you mm-hmm. wouldn't have thought that they had the, the the you know all the pressure upon them. I thought that they were very free that week. Uh, and you know, it's nice to play with a lead, which they did, but they didn't they didn't pucker up, they didn't get tight. Uh, and I think that that and look, I think it was it was real. And one other thing about about Europe, and I, I I love the point that Poulter made that he shared with you about not having to apologize. The other thing is, and no none of their best players, whoever that best player might have been at that particular Ryder Cup, was ever going to be at the level of Tiger. But the fact is, whoever that best player was was still their best player, and that player didn't look upon the other eleven going. Well, he's got to fit a certain criteria to, to be able to, to hang with me to be at my level. And a couple of examples that I use in 2018, yeah, it had been a while for Rory having won a major, and he obviously is still waiting on his next one. His first match was with Torbjorn Olison. And I thought, damn it, there's another example. They, anybody, any format doesn't matter. We, we are 12, and, and we don't have, you don't have to come to me and go, you know, and do it sheepishly. Like, would you be okay if we, no, whoever it is, let's go out there and let's get a point. And I've always felt that that was the mantra. Look, I, I, I never saw Phil and Tiger. And again, it's different. When Faldo and Seve are crying with their hands on each other's cheeks at, at, at Oak Hill. Yeah. I mean, okay. That's different. It totally is different. There's, you know, there's great stories of uh, Darren Clark and Colin Montgomery walking arm in arm down the fairway together. Two guys who hated each other, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but really for it's not that Europe gets along better. People like to say that it's not, but they do at the Ryder cup, everything is aside and they can be together. Um, and you know, it's funny. I thought the same exact thing about Valhalla when, when you talked about a tiger, not being there kind of freed them in some way. And I don't think Azinger would ever think of it that way to him. It was devastating when he learned that tiger sure. wasn't going to be there naturally. But, you know, yeah, but when, you know, it's funny the way this works, and it's such a great example because that was one of the few times, like if you add up all the world rankings, Europe was a stronger team on paper. And not just on paper, but they had all these Ryder Cup veterans who had been beating the U.S. for years and years. Uh, the last two Ryder Cups were both 18.5 to 9.5 blowouts. They have all their people back. The U.S. has a ton of first-timers. The captain's picks are chosen by the players themselves, which nobody knew until after. And they're, they're kind of oddball ones to the point where Johnny Miller is like, what are, I wouldn't have picked any one of these guys, you know, right. other, than, other than Stricker. And so this is like, on paper, a recipe for Americans to lose. There's almost no way they can win this Ryder Cup. And instead, they win it comfortably. And it just shows you how what it actually takes to win the Ryder Cup 
Uh, it's not about who's better on paper. All of these guys are good. It's about these other things that add up. And yeah, I think I, I just keep asking myself, I wish we could explore, like we could, what would have happened if Tiger had been on that team? Yeah. I wish we could see the two results against each other, because I'm with you. I think, I think it was good for them in a weird accidental way. It was probably good that he wasn't there. Um, so it's yeah, very funny. Um, let's, let's dig in on, on the, the guts of this book, which is whistling straights. And, um, there are a couple things specifically about each captain, Steve Stricker and Padraig Harrington, that the fact that Stricker, uh, rolled with the, the captain's picks and, and the allotment, the way that he did, you, you talked about in detail, um, and, and explain to you, explain to everybody why you thought, and again, you can say retrospect, whatever. The fact is, I, I thought it, it sh- I thought it was a, a gutsy move on his part to say, no, 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 I'm not taking something off of me. I'm keeping on me exactly what was in place, even though we were pushed out a year. Uh, and with Padraig Harrington, he kept it. He could have he could have increased that number, but he kept it. And so half of the U.S. team was at the discretion of of Steve Stricker, whereas with the European side, it was only three of the 12. Explain the, why, why you thought that that was very important. And, you know, just just to add, not only did Powerick stick with three, but three was actually down from four. Yes, at the time right. Before. He actually took one less. And so so what happens? Uh, this is such a great example of a few things. First of all, America learning. What we've learned, you know, and stats back this up, is that captain's picks in a Ryder Cup and in a President's Cup tend to perform better than the players who make the team at the bottom of the list. So let's say you have eight people making the team normally and four captain's picks. Those four captain's picks have done better historically than, let's say, numbers six through eight on that on that team list. And what that means, you know, basically your captain's picks, for whatever reason, you know, probably because you're choosing guys that you want on the team and you know they're successful, they do better. And so, yeah, this pandemic was a perfect excuse for Stricker to pick, let's say, we're going to do six captain's picks. And he's got a reason for it, right? Because look, if four are good and we know captain's picks play better, what about six? Six would be even better, right? Probably be better if you could pick the whole team yourself. But, you know, let's take six picks. Then we're going back to a thing. Okay, you can go back to four if you want. No, he's sticking with six captain's picks because he's listening to the numbers, which is not something America always did. He's listening to the numbers and he's keeping that. And as you know, for the President's Cup, for the Ryder Cup in Italy moving forward, six is the number now. They're not giving that back. You know what I mean? They, they recognize an advantage. They recognize a benefit when they see one. If they want, they can just pick the next six guys on the list if they want. You know, that doesn't change anything, right? But it gives them freedom not to do that if they don't want to do that. Now, on the other side, Parry Carrington, I really like him and I love to hear him talk and his players all loved him. And I'm not here to, you know, trash him or sure. say he was a bad captain or anything. But I asked him at the very first, this was in 2019 before the pandemic, um, at, you know, at Whistling Straits, it was called the one year to go presser. And it wasn't actually one year to go, but we thought it was at the time. I said, yeah, why did you go to three captain's picks? And he looked kind of irritated to hear that. And I didn't realize why at the time, but I'm sure people, his stats people had said, why are you doing this? He said, because the reason I'm doing this is because when you're a captain's pick, you feel pressure to perform. Versus when you are on the team, when you make the team on points, you feel comfortable, like you've earned your spot. So it's better to have fewer captain's picks because you feel that pressure. Now, that's a theory in his head. But again, the theory is not backed up by the stats. In fact, the stats tell the opposite story. And so he stuck with his three captain's picks through the pandemic. He didn't expand, right? He had, Like we said, he had gone down from what Thomas Bjorn had used uh, when he had used four. 
that just shows you this guy's like, he's got this idea in his head. It's the wrong idea. It's not right. And there were a couple examples of that. And then I don't think any of this stuff would have reversed a 19 to nine deficit, by the way. So I'm not arguing that he right. lost his right. right. Okay. But it, it does show you, doesn't it? Like on one side, they know exactly what captain's picks do and they're going to expand. If you had given them eight, he would have taken eight. Right. On the other side, different, you know, he's not listening to the numbers and you know, you, you can't overcome that kind of thing. The, um, the the makeup of the American team and the way uh, that it, it wound up shaking out. And now, in, you know, you look back on Scotty Scheffler um, mm -hmm. and it's like, wow. But I, I want you to explain the, the, the particular details and and whether it was intuition and a combination of, of results uh, that, that galvanized Stricker's decision to put him on the side short of having won yet on the PGA Tour. And also... The Reed situation. I think Patrick Reed is. I think he's he's got himself a quandary uh, mm. for because not only did I think Tiger, I thought Tiger covered him at Royal Melbourne on the Presidents Cup side. Like guys, just you got to live with him. And and if it was any other captain, there might have been more public acrimony about his presence being there. They had to swallow hard, and he was there, and Tiger covered him. But th after that, it was over. And now he's in a situation, if he's not in the top six, I think he's in real jeopardy of not being on any American teams uh, going forward, even if he's seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. But tell me your thoughts on Reed uh, in this particular Ryder Cup and, and going forward, and then also the Scheffler decision. Yeah, well, with Reed, you know, that obviously the thing in the Bahamas with his, you know, sand shenanigans, whatever you want to call it, right? I mean, like, it seems like he was cheating. I think we can all say that there, yeah. there was at least a suspicion of that. Uh, but yeah, so that right before Australia, right? So it forces the American team. And, and by the way, Steve Stricker is an assistant captain in Australia. So he's watching all of this right before the Ryder Cup. Yeah. So that forces every American captain and teammate to answer questions about Patrick Reed. Okay. Which is its own kind of distraction and stress when they're already tired from having to fly to Australia then what happens? Well, you know, what if Patrick Reed went like five and oh, right? Then maybe you say, okay, well, you know, that was a distraction, but look what Reed can do for us. Instead, he loses a bunch in the pairs and his caddy gets in a fight with a with a fan, gets kicked out. Jay Monaghan's got to come in and kick him out, you know, Kessler Corain for the rest of the tournament. He embarrasses them, right? So he embarrasses them beforehand. Then he embarrasses them at the President's Cup and doesn't win many matches until until singles. Uh, when I think he beat CT Pan in yes. singles. Until then, you know, he's losing. Uh, so all of a sudden, if you're Steve Stricker, you're looking at it and going, why on earth do I want this guy in my team? We know what he's done in the past. But, you know, like, look what look what the potential downside is. It's, it's a big one. And, you know, you're dealing with the President's Cup. They almost lost that President's Cup. I don't blame that on Reed or anything like that. But when the margins are so small when you're playing the Europeans in the Ryder Cup, you cannot afford that kind of stuff. That distraction stuff, it really, really can, you know, torpedo you. So we get to, you know, the captain's picks and what happens from a dramatic side, almost unfortunately, what happens is that Reed gets sick. And so, you know, he came back for the tour championship yep. after being hospitalized for COVID and he didn't, you know, he was, he played and he finished the tournament, but he didn't show enough. And so Steve Stricker had a really good excuse not to take him. Right, because the guy was just in the hospital, on you know, according to him, on death's door. And not so, only that, and not only that, Shane, you point out the the way that he again he has this this b bizarre habit of, of not just telling the truth, even if the truth is not harmful. 
Like, what, what are you doing explaining that you were not tested when you went into the hospital for COVID, but you were on the way out and you spoke to the hospital and they said, look, we can't talk about anyone individually, obviously. Uh, we can't do that, but we can make it very damn clear that our policy, which we can assure you uh, was not violated, is that everyone is tested before they come in. It's like that whole part of it. Like, what are you doing? The, 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 to come and say I was in the hospital close to death with a lung ailment, a breathing problems, and then on the same hand to, to try to tell us that they had never tested him for COVID, it, it is. It's like, what is the point of this? What is the point of this? Why are we doing this? You're going to force me to call a Houston major hospital to have them tell me, yeah, of course, we, we test people for COVID. <laughs> we test everyone for COVID when they come. It doesn't matter if they have a you know broken ankle. Like, we test them for COVID. Someone with a lung ailment, yeah, we're definitely testing them for COVID. So, yeah, it, again, it goes into all that stuff. And so I, I wish, you know, and, and it's funny, I asked Steve Stricker, I, I said to him later, I, this was via text, I said, if Patrick Reed had been healthy in the same position, you know, ahead of Scotty Scheffler on the points list that he had been in, would you have chosen him for that team? And he responded with, I'm going to refrain from answering that one with a winking emoji. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so we'll never really know, but I suspect Patrick Reed wasn't making that team unless he qualified automatically. Um, and then you go to Scheffler, which is a, a, a great counterexample. Uh, Scheffler, we saw he won the match play this year. Last year in the match play, he made the finals and he lost to Billy Horschel. But along the way, he beat Ian Poulter and he beat John Rahm. And I was there covering that. And I, I texted Stricker after, you know, will you, you want to comment on Horschel and Scheffler being in the championship and, you know, how good that is for the Americans? Uh, and he, he didn't really mention Billy Horschel at all, but he said about Scheffler, I really liked watching Scotty this week and really impressive to see him beat some of Europe's big guys in Poulter and Rom, And then just the, the sort of poetic justice of it that, you know, he tees up Scotty Scheffler to play with the Shambo, only plays twice. And so he rolls into Sunday singles really fresh at the Ryder cup. Uh, and he meets John Rom, the, the guy by beating him, maybe like partially earned his way on this team and then delivers a point and beats John Rom again, who had been so spectacular uh, in all his matches before then. So, you know, it's really, really hard to find any place where Steve Stricker put his foot wrong in this Ryder Cup. But that I so Scotty Scheffler is one where you say, wow, what a, what a coup. He really he really did a really smart thing there. You know, when you look at, at Europe now and one of the other things, uh, Paul McGinley is is quoted uh, quite a bit in here. And I'm uh, an enormous fan of Paul's uh, not only. Uh, presently with what he does on, on television, but you go back to the way he was in 2014, and he's actually part of uh, a, a small little group of guys that, that really are kind of the, the, the brain trust of, of trying to get as much out of the Ryder Cup for Europe uh, as they possibly can beyond the, the small little selection committee that, that chooses who the captain is, which, you know, everyone who may have looked at Paul McGinley or, or subsequently looked at Thomas Bourne, you got to understand the power and the respect that those guys have always had on the tour. That is a European tour property as opposed to over here. And, and again, if you, if you cover golf, you know these things, but people who don't know as much about it, um, th th those guys are all a product of that system, the system of the European tour. And I just wonder where it's going because these guys who are lined up like private jets uh, on a tarmac, whether it be Westwood, Poulter, Garcia, Rose, if these guys go and play for the Live Golf Series, the, the future of the European Ryder Cup captaincy falls into hands very different than what it looked like over the next 10 to 15 years. Don't you agree? 
I totally agree. It's it's funny because before all the Saudi stuff started, your conversation was, how on earth are you going to get all these guys to be captains? Because there are so many. So many. Sergio, Leswood, Poulter, Rose. I mean, you, like, you could you could probably go all the way to 10, right, of these guys who are. Agreed. You know, Stenson, right, like, who's going to be captain this time. These these Ryder Cup stalwarts, and it's just going to be such a you know um, bottleneck of of trying to get these guys to be captain. Well, now, <laughs> now you have the opposite problem of a lot of them seem to be of the prime age and the prime demographic of the guys who are going to go maybe play in the Live Golf Tour and and sort of cash in on that. And then, yeah, if that does cost them the Ryder Cup captaincy, which it seems like probably it will. I mean, it's, it seems like that's where it's going. Yeah, then you go well. Now who's going to be captain? And, th- and there's probably still guys, but you're losing out on some of your biggest names and and some of these guys you counted on. And like, how weird would a world be where Lee Westwood is not a Ryder Cup captain? How weird would a world be where Ian Poulter is not a Ryder? Sergio Garcia. I mean, just just bizarre, right? Bizarre. I mean, Shane, these are these guys have been not only a part of of maintaining what was started, uh, but but you know, making them even more emboldened to believe. And, and as European depth improved, where you didn't have to hide guys and they, and they weren't afraid of getting to the 12 in the Sunday singles because of the inspiration all these guys had provided to the next generation. If, if you don't have those guys lined up anymore, like if all those guys go and play in Saudi Arabia for this Saudi Arabia backed series, who's captaining the team at, at Bethpage? You need, you need as strong a personality uh, yeah. to, 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 to manage an environment which is going to be not borderline, it's going to be completely over the line. I, 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 I mean, we, we know that, right? There's no way it's not. There's no way. You know, one of the funny things about every single Ryder Cup, no matter where it is, is immediately you get people going, this crosses the line. I've never seen anything like it. No matter where it is, time and <laughs> right. again. And often there are. I, the worst one I've seen was that Hazeltine. I mean, there was some really crazy yeah. stuff there. But yeah, I mean, going to Long Island, come on, give me a break. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, not only yeah, who are your captains going to be? Who are your players going to be? I mean, there, there's a lot of concerns for the Europeans right now, uh, which is why I think when you combine that with sort of this like newly solid nucleus of both U.S. players and captains, you start to go, man, this doesn't look good. This doesn't. This looks like, you know, we could be going back to to U.S. winning in Europe routinely. I mean, it could be. You know, in 10 years, we might be having a conversation like, is the Ryder Cup dead? You know, because you're, who knows? Alan Shipnuck said that last time. And, you know, he got, yes. then, then they won in Paris and Rory, you know, attacked him afterward. But it, it does feel kind of like we are at a sea change where the competence, the talent, everything belongs on one side. Let's uh, let's talk about Rory a little bit because he had a, he, you know, a, a pretty dreadful week at Whistling Straits. But he won his singles match. And in the aftermath of that, he was something he generally is not. I, I think he's a very, I think he's almost too normal uh, for, for what he does for, for a living. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he has the prickish gene uh, to the degree that maybe some other great generational players have mm-hmm. had. And he got very emotional. And, you know, look, his first time was 2010. And, he, and, he, and to his credit, and I've liked this about him, he's allowed his opinion on things to evolve. It doesn't make him wrong. It actually makes him smarter because the more he learns about something, he experiences things. And he goes, no, no, yeah, I, I've, I've evolved to think about something differently than I did before. He has to be beyond a central figure for Europe Shane, in my estimation, going forward, not only in terms of the way he and John Rahm play, but the way mm-hmm. that he holds this thing together 
during a time where all these guys from the United States are in their mid to late 20s and they're hitting their stride and they damn care about this thing now. Yeah, you know, I mean, before Whistling Straits began, I actually spoke with Paul McGinley and he and I were of the same mindset of it's really hard to see how Europe wins this thing. And this was Thursday night. So yeah. just looking at things, you know, just being able to kind of gather what the captains were like, how, you know, what form the players were in. And the one thing that like I took from it was if Europe is going to win, it's going to be very close. And just like you said, John Rahm and Rory McIlroy are going to have to be spectacular. They're going to have to be beyond spectacular. John Rahm was. Yes, really. he was. Like, you know, up until Sunday, he was unbelievable. Uh, I, I was, it was, I think it was the one little piece of inspiration, but what a piece of inspiration, how he played Rory wasn't Rory disappeared. And uh, in that you couldn't have just one of them. I mean, you needed two, and even then they might not have won, but you needed those guys because th this is not the stacked European teams of the past and going forward, it's going to be even less stacked because, you know, Ian Poulter actually played really well at that Ryder Cup. Mm -hmm. I mean, you still had Poulter, you had Westwood who won a singles match. You had some of these old guards, Sergio, who played really well with, with John Rahm. Those guys aren't going to be around much longer. And then you start looking beyond Rahm and Rory and you see uh, Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, you know, Tyrrell, Hat Tyrrell Hatton could be really good. Yeah. Um, Fleetwood, we have seen him be really good, but he wasn't the same, you know, in Wisconsin, but it, you start to go like who, who are, and then you, from Europe, you're hearing, well, you know, Rasmus Hoygaard, sure. you're hearing all these young names. And it's like, that's all well and good, but that's really speculative that they're going to be good enough, even in two years or four years or whatever, to be the next thing. And America doesn't have to be like that, do we? We can, <laughs> you can give 15 names right now of guys who, you know, some of them are going to be there and you're going to have a really good team. But yeah, to your point about Rory, like, yeah, that emotion was so cool. I mean, it really encapsulated what the, how special the Ryder Cup is to him. And I think it's only, you know, it's, it's so great to see that. You know, I, I, I had Eamon Lynch and, and Jaime Diaz on in the immediate aftermath. And Jaime said something that, you know, and Jaime is not in the business of hot takery. Uh, but mm -hmm. he said, you know, I, I really think that the International President's Cup team is going to be better uh, than the European Ryder Cup team for the next decade. It doesn't mean that the international side is going to win, but, mm -hmm. and they've got to figure out, you know, some barriers, some cultural barriers, some, some bona fide language barriers. Um, but, but in terms of cultivating talent in the parts of the world that they're getting it from, and, and I, I tend to agree with him that, that Europe is in not only a period of transition, but but the, the likelihood of the cultivation of talent from continental from from nations in continental Europe, it's not as easy necessarily as places like South Africa and Australia and the Far East. Yeah. Um, so, you know, look, somebody like Victor Hovland, I think Victor Hovland has a chance to be a stalwart and he damn well better be Shane, because <laughs> yeah. I, I think we're going back potentially. And again, the United States has to go to Rome and they got to win. They got to totally. win to really, you know, usher in this idea that it's on now. And what you did to us from the 90s into the, the turn of this century is getting ready to happen to you. Um, but I think all the indications are there that it that it's it's lined up for that. I think so, too. But you're right. I mean, until that victory happens on on European soil, which hasn't happened since 1993, so it'll be, you know, 30, 31 years or whatever the next time they go. You know, that's a really long time not to win. Uh, and so they have to do it. And if Europe does win somehow, then you say, well, they've, they've held serve. And it, you start to think it starts to look really, really hard for any team to win on away from home. But I, I'm with you. I think a lot can happen between now and then. So we don't, you know, it's hard to predict now. But I really do think that 
the U.S. is looking really, really good to go and win one in Italy. And once that happens, yeah, then then it's going to be some hand wringing from the Europeans. There already is nineteen to nine is enough to start them really worrying. But they're imagine losing in Italy. They're going to go. Uh oh. Now, now everything that we feared is coming to pass. And what are the answers? And yeah, it gets hard. It gets hard to find the answers. At and, that point. and and Shane, the other thing again, getting back to the captain. You, you, instead of having somebody locked in who is part of the lineage of of decades of winning, uh, you you may have uh, you know who knows Luke Donald, Graham McDowell, and, you know th- these are guys who are wildly respected, but but it's not Ian Poulter, uh, it's not Lee Westwood, it's not Sergio Garcia. You know, by the way, that next road game is at Bethpage, mm-hmm. uh, which which is like going to Yankee Stadium in the late seventies. I'm not talking about the museum they have now. I'm talking about you know, the jungle that, that used to exist there. So with that's true. Now, I want to ask you the dynamics of this year, American team before I let you go. And again, the book, The Cup They Couldn't Lose, uh, I highly, highly recommend uh, you read this. You will thoroughly enjoy not only what you'll learn about Whistling Straits, what you'll learn historically uh, about the event. Whose team is this on the United States side? Because if you look at these guys, they're all contemporaries. They're essentially like from the same high school class uh, of 2011. Who is the touchstone of this generation of, of American Ryder Cup players? You know, I, and that's a question a lot of people asked Team USA before yeah. the week leading up to Whistling Straits. Who's your Who's your leader? I think that you know the trick answer to that is there isn't there isn't one, and they don't need one. And I, I think that has been one of the great innovations, as strange as it sounds, on the American side. You look back at Paul Azinger. We're not going to try to be a team of 12 best friends. We're going to break it down into pods so that we can all have our little units and be close. You know, you look at Stricker this time. Stricker came of age in a time where there are all these motivational speeches. I don't like motivational speeches. I don't like having to go to a million events, right? I don't like having to sign a million autographs. So his whole thing, and, and he got an assist from COVID on this, but his whole thing was we're going to do even less. We're not going to do rah-rah speeches. We're not going to have these team bonding sessions. We don't need any of that, right? We don't need to be kumbaya friends. We don't need a leader. We don't need a spiritual leader. All we need to do is free these guys up in the selfish, you know, egos, centric world that they inhabit, which is the world of professional golf. We need to free them up to have them play the best golf they can. And the way to do that is by making it just as much like a normal week as it can. And through that sort of decentralizing everything, they're going to have the best possible time. They're going to learn to love the Ryder cup and they're going to play the best. And so I don't think they need, it's not Justin Thomas. It's not Jordan Spieth. They don't need that guy. They're just, they're just these guys who are all fully capable of being their own leaders. And Steve Stricker, I think what he did so well was to trust them and say, go get them. Like, let them loose, let them off the chain. And that's all he needed to do. Last thing is the, the, the one other advantage I think that the United States has is the fact that the, that that group of guys who are from uh, literally the same high school class of 2011, there's a legitimate, you know, bond there between those guys. You know, Berger, Spieth, Thomas, Shoffley, Cantley was in 2011. But but those guys, th- those guys have not only respect for each other. They're legitimate friends. And so you've got, it, it, look, there is still friction that exists. DeChambeau is an interesting dynamic that you got to navigate. Bryson is going to be peculiar. And, and Brooks is his own, he's his own entity. And you have to, you have to, you know, 
live through through that existence of, of what he is. I think Dustin just rolls as he. I mean, he was brilliant at Whistling yep. Straits, and then he was hammered in the <laughs> press conference uh, afterwards, which was hysterical. But nonetheless, so if there is somebody who creates a little friction, there's too many guys in the room that are pulling in the same direction to allow that to be disruptive. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Totally nailed it, right? If, if you have eight guys who are setting the tone in a certain kind of way, very easy to incorporate a Bryson DeChambeau into that because he's not going to upset the core, right? He's going to, he, what's going to happen is he's going to fall in line and yeah, he's got his eccentricities and all that. And some people don't like him, but yeah, when you have these eight guys behaving in a certain way and they're friends, people are going to fall into that dynamic because they are leaders without having to be quote unquote leaders in the traditional sense, just sort of leading by example. And yeah, I mean, like Stricker did, I think a really good job navigating the uh, Kepka DeChambeau feud and all that, but that made it easy, Gary. You, you totally nailed it. I mean, these guys are who they are and they're the ones that people are going to follow. Listen, the book, again, I, I, I thought, I think it's great. Uh, comes out today, uh, Tuesday, May 10th. I'm looking forward to seeing you next week at the PGA and, and appreciate the fact that you, you dug in on this. And it's not just, as I said, about whistling straights. It was about uh, giving people an understanding of how we got to where we are, which is one of the most important, significant competitions in golf. Um, and and it's, it's very different. Uh, and it's very different for a lot of reasons. And you and you get to the to the root cause of those reasons in this book. Exceptionally well done. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate having me on, Gary. Thank you. Really appreciate Shane Ryan. A again, I'm not it's not effusive praise because he was with me. Uh, his first book, Slaying the Tiger, was was a difference maker, I thought, in terms of the way you can cover the PGA Tour in present day. Uh, and this book is equally as good. Uh, the Cup, they couldn't lose. Uh, you can get it anywhere that books are sold and highly recommended if you're into golf at all, which I know if you're watching this, you clearly are. A reminder and a little notice, uh, Gil Hance, his next program with Russ Meyer, who is the superintendent at Southern Hills. Gil did the restoration of the site of next week's PGA Championship. Their show to preview what Southern Hills is and the challenges it provides coming out next Monday. Have a great week, everybody.